This is Fordham Conversations. I'm Nora Flaherty. When you think about the civil rights movement in the United States, it's likely that one very specific phrase comes to mind. I have a dream. The I Have a Dream speech made in Washington, D.C. in 1963 is one of the most iconic moments of the civil rights movement. And Martin Luther King is probably that movement's most iconic figure. Like King, most of the other iconic figures and moments that we remember from the civil rights movement, like the Montgomery bus boycott and the Mississippi Freedom Summer, were Southern. What we remember from the Northern civil rights movement is a little blurrier and maybe a little less PBS-friendly. Rioting, black nationalism, stuff that maybe doesn't feel quite as comfortable for many of us to think about. But Brian Purnell says that the ideas that many of us have about the Northern civil rights movement aren't entirely correct. Purnell is an assistant professor of African and African-American studies at Fordham University, and he is my guest today on Fordham Conversations. He's working on a book now about one very specific aspect of the Northern civil rights movement that might be of interest to many New Yorkers. I spoke to Purnell in our studios recently about the Northern civil rights movement and why we should remember it. Brian Purnell, welcome. Thanks. It's good to be here. Now, tell me just to start out, why is so much more attention paid to the civil rights movement in the South than the movement in the North? I think for three main reasons. The first has to do with the iconography of the movement and the way that those icons have been promoted in such popular documentaries as Eyes on the Prize. So the icons of the movement are peaceful demonstrators singing We Shall Overcome, being carted off into police vans, or fire hoses spraying down demonstrators and police dogs attacking demonstrators in various parts of the South. So we're, we're more used to seeing icons from the South. We're more used to forms of what we would think of as Southern uh, racism. Whites-only signs on top of water fountains is the most prominent icon that jumps to people's minds. But segregated buses, segregated theaters, segregated uh, hotels and restaurants, all of those are are associated with the South. And then last, um, and certainly not least of importance, is the dominance of Martin Luther King in people's conception and understanding of the civil rights movement. And King is thought of in popular consciousness as a Southern leader and a Southern figure. So I think the icons and King and the distinctly Southern forms of racial discrimination that most people associate with with the civil rights movement all take our attention below the Mason-Dixon line. Are there any icons of civil rights from the North at all? Not as popular or as accessible, I think. I think when people think of the movement, well, I don't think people think of a movement in the North. I think that's one of the the areas that my researchers and, and, and others who are working in this field are looking to to highlight is that there was there was a movement in the North. When people think of the North and the 60s, they usually think of what happens 65, 66, and, and later in the decade, which, which is the moments of intense urban violence that shake the country's consciousness to its core. I mean, there's, there's conflagrations going on in cities across the country in 67, 68. I mean, the three biggest ones are Newark and Detroit and Watts. And the level of destruction and death and arrests and bloodshed that occurs in those moments of urban violence really, I think, takes people's attention, has, has taken people's attention away from the earlier 1960s movements in the North, movements that in some ways resemble nonviolent 
direct action protests that was occurring in other parts of the country. Now, you are working on a book about the civil rights movement in a very specific place, which is Brooklyn. Mm -hmm. Tell me about that. Well, I'm focusing on a very active chapter of the Congress of Racial Equality, CORE. CORE was a national civil rights organization that had been in existence since the early 1940s. And one of the unique things about CORE is that it had chapters all, all over the country. Um, and it had, so it had chapters in urban centers outside of the South. And I'm following the history of the Brooklyn chapter of CORE, which in some ways was a very dynamic and creative and, and active northern urban chapter. So the book is going to trace their history throughout the 1960s. Um, it takes a, a local history micro approach to talk about the movement in the North writ large and also to speak about um, some specific aspects of New York's politics in the 1960s. So who were CORE in Brooklyn? Most of the people in Brooklyn CORE were really what, what I would just call everyday people. Married people, single people, young people, old people, veteran activists and newcomers to uh, the civil rights movement. One thing I was interested in was that it seemed to be an interracial movement pretty much from the beginning. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Brooklyn Corps is pretty evenly split. I should note it's a small organization. They do some pretty extraordinary things in New York City um, throughout the early 1960s, but it's never a very large group. It never really grows beyond maybe... Uh, 17 or, or 19 active members. So it is pretty evenly split in terms of its, its cadre between African Americans and whites. Why did you focus on Brooklyn? <laughs> well, <laughs> um, I don't know. I'm from Brooklyn. <laughs> I don't know if that's a, if that's a, a, a good answer. I think I, I originally wanted to do research and write about something that I enjoyed and I really have always been fascinated by where I, I grew up in New York City and Brooklyn in general. But the more academic um, reason is that the Brooklyn chapter of CORE was involved in almost every major civil rights demonstration in New York City in the early 1960s. And they really were innovators and leaders in devising dramatic demonstrations to capture politicians and media's attention. I think that they were at the f they were at the forefront of of that type of activity. So that's what makes them very very important. And I mean, and Brooklyn in general is an incredibly important place through which to study civil rights activism in the urban North. In Brooklyn, New York has a reputation in Americana as being a center of kind of this post World War II melting pot of American ethnics, right? Um, the Brooklynite was a quintessential member of the new American identity in, lo in a lot of the old uh, World War II films. You know, there was always a New England Protestant and a Midwestern farm boy and a Southerner, and inevitably there would be somebody from Brooklyn, right? You see this in Steven Spielberg's uh, Saving Private Ryan, where one of the characters played by Ed Burns has Brooklyn, New York, Brooklyn, USA on his flak jacket. So, I mean, in a lot of ways, Brooklynites, from the Honeymooners to the Dodgers to these, this new multi-ethnic platoon that comes out of World War II films, right, became a symbol of the scrappy, working-class city American. And 
since Brooklyn occupies such a prominent place in what what Americans thought their country was in the post-war period, the story of the civil rights movement in Brooklyn, in some ways, it challenges that those notions of Brooklyn being just like the rest of the world. And it also reinforces that there were problems of racial discrimination and activism against racial injustice in a place like Brooklyn. You are listening to Fordham Conversations on WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org. I'm Nora Flaherty. I'm talking today on the show with Brian Purnell. He's an assistant professor of African and African American studies at Fordham, and he's working on a book about the civil rights movement in the North, specifically in Brooklyn. In our conversation, Purnell suggested to me that next to the victories of the Southern Civil Rights Movement, those of the Northern Civil Rights Movement seem to have been a lot less sweeping in their scope. Let's hear more. I think a lot of people who are listening might say those victories in the North seem smaller because the obstacles that were facing black people at that time in the North were not as obvious and as enormous as the obstacles facing black people in Jim Crow South. What were the problems that were facing people in the North? There were about four or five major ones that organizations like Brooklyn Corps tackled. Um, There was housing discrimination. So African-Americans in New York City could not live in certain neighborhoods. Right? They couldn't rent apartments in certain neighborhoods. Landlords and realtors had surreptitious methods for denying African-American applicants homes. This is a huge problem. Places like Bedford-Stuyvesant are incredibly congested with people. Right? It's one of the most densely ur- populated urban spaces in the country. By 1970, there are 656,000 people living in this one community in central Brooklyn. The strains that that puts on the neighborhood's housing stock are enormous. And people with means, right, working class and middle class African Americans and, and West Indians who have the means to move to more spacious apartments in other parts of the borough are denied those apartments because of discriminatory practices, So, for example, when African-Americans would try to move into an apartment in Bensonhurst or Sheepshead Bay or Midwood or or Flatbush in the the 1960s, they might go and they would ask for an application. And the landlord or the real estate agent would say, you know, we just rented that apartment. Sorry. When that happens enough times, it's not it's not an accident. And what Brooklyn Corps would do is they began to test these supposedly rented apartments and they would send white applicants to apply for the apartment directly after African-American applicants were denied access, right? So that was, that's one major problem, is, is, is just housing. And it's the way that neighborhoods in New York City are racially segregated. It's not entirely by choice, right? Some of it is by choice, right? People want to live around those that eat the same foods that they eat, attend the same churches that they attend, and listen to the same music and cultural tradition traditions that they share. But some of it, too, is is because of discriminatory practices. So housing is a big issue. Employment and jobs is another civil rights issue in the urban north right? that organizations like Brooklyn Corps tackle in the early 1960s. It was difficult to get good-paying, stable employment in places like New York City and, and other urban centers throughout the country. It wasn't impossible. It just became harder over time. And it and the areas that Brooklyn Core focuses on 
are areas such as uh, the construction trades industry. So unions, right? The building trades industry is rarely out of work in a place like New York City. There's always a building being torn down or a building being put up, right? And those are stable, good-paying, unionized jobs that even someone with minimal specialized skill can do well in and earn a decent living, right? The classic discriminatory tactic for the construction unions was to demand that black applicants have jobs already before they apply. So what would happen is if you were a skilled worker or, or you're an unskilled worker and you just wanted to try to get some, some, some employment on a construction site and you were African-American, you might approach the foreman and you'd say, listen, do you have any work that I can do? Um, you know, I'm, I'm pretty good with my hands or, I, or even if I have a specialized skill, I was in the service, I learned how to do electronics in the service or I learned how to do carpentry. Is there any work that I can do on this site? And, and the, the foreman of the job would inevitably say, sure, we have some work, but you need to go to the union hall and get on the books. So the African-American applicant would go to the union hall and say, I spoke to the foreman at this particular job. He said they have work. Can I get a union book so I can get on the job? And the person at the union hall might say, well, wait a second. You need to have a job first before you can get on the books. So go out and get a job, and then we'll see about getting you into the union, right? So there's this, this cycle that African Americans go through in trying to attain skilled employment. So jobs was another major problem. Uh, a third major one was schools. We normally don't think, in terms of the civil rights movement, we don't think of schools outside of the South as being racially segregated, right? But they were. I mean, I don't know what else you would call it when you have some schools which are 75, 80% African-American and Puerto Rican compared to other schools which are 90, 95% white and that these schools have such disparate resources, reading and, and math levels, physical conditions in the schools, quality of experienced teachers, and population densities, schools and integrating schools, or at least in, in the North, the question was as much about integrating the schools as it was about getting schools in predominantly black and Puerto Rican neighborhoods at the same level of performance as schools in predominantly white neighborhoods was a major civil rights issue in New York. Now, clearly, uh, New York and the North in general and the South are very different places. And it strikes me that sort of the intellectual roots of civil rights in the South and in the North must have been somewhat different. Were the goals different and were the roots different between these two different groups of activists? Um, that's a great question. I think some of the goals were, were, were most certainly different, right? African Americans in the South, one of their major demands was for protection at the voting booths. African Americans in the South, pre-1964, throughout the 40s and the 50s, I mean, voting was rare at best and it was it was uh you were taking your life in your hands if you would if you tried to organize politically so african americans in the north didn't have that same political agenda i think that the the north was was more focused again on on things like jobs equal access to housing compared to the south uh as far as you know the the roots that's a that's a really good question the roots most, I think most of us, when we think of the movement 
in the in the South, we assume that the roots kind of came from um, a nonviolent Christian pacifism, right? And again, we get that idea because Dr. King looms so large over over our our memory of the movement. You know, the movement in the South comes from a lot of different places. It comes from World War II vets who, when they went back home to Mississippi, people like Medgar Evers, who returns home from World War II and he can't vote, right? He's turned away from the voting booths in his hometown of Mississippi by armed white men. And he joins the NAACP in 1947, 1948, and begins to organize for the right to vote, right? That's a root of the civil rights movement in the South that we don't normally think about, we don't normally talk about. Some of the roots in the North come from the political structures that African Americans had been involved in since the Great Migrations. So, you know, their roots in Northern Republican parties and and after World War II, Northern Democratic clubs, that's a root of civil rights activism in the North. A major root of civil rights activism, I would say, in both parts of the country is is former left-leaning and progressive organizations that were put on trial during the McCarthy era, right? There's a lot of activism going on, especially in the North, right, through the Communist Party in the Great Depression in the 1930s and even into the early 1940s. But so much of that activism around equal employment and housing and justice, right, solidarity with things like the Scottsboro trials in the 1930s, so much of that activism and that leadership is wiped away with uh, Red Scare McCarthy trials that took off in the 1950s in Cold War hysteria. So those activists go underground in many ways in the North, but they pop up again and you see connections between late 1930s radicalism and 1960s activism in some of the people that gravitate towards organizations like Brooklyn Corps. So one of the major leaders was a man named Oliver Leeds and his wife Marjorie Leeds, who were both active in interracial, progressive, and radical organizations in the 1930s. So they, they pop up again in the 1960s. You know, I think, and, and the black church is very important in activism anywhere in the country. I mean, African-American churches, Christian churches, were some of the first and in, many, in some cases the only independent institutions that African-Americans ran Do you think that the Northern Civil Rights Movement is maybe perceived as being more, I don't know, sort of commie than the (laughs) Southern, and maybe that's why it hasn't been as popularly remembered? I think that the the Red Scare and McCarthyism and the ways that calls for racial justice were conflated with pro-Soviet, you know, tendencies, a lot of that does a great deal to wipe away our historical memory of this of this movement right i mean so much of the reasons that the southern movement was appealing was because in popular media and the mainstream discourses of the movement it articulated a very pro-american you know pro-american values of of christianity and civil disobedience and pursuits of justice i mean everybody readily identified that those were hallmarks of america's political and cultural identity And, you know, the Southern Civil Rights Movement and the gross violence directed towards activists and towards African-Americans in the South served as a very as an embarrassing blemish on the United States face around the world during the Cold War. You know, they were able to use that discourse and reap 
dividends off of it in, in ways that it was harder for people to do in the North, right? Calling for equality in employment or equal access to jobs does not resonate the same way with people as calling for the right to vote, right? There's all sorts of arguments that one can, can marshal against the very real practices of racial discrimination in employment. And there's a lot of ways that people who practice racial discrimination in those areas can sidestep dealing with it. Well, they can say black people are lazy or black people aren't as smart. That's why they're not as represented in these fields. That's why they don't do as well in school. When you articulate those, those types of behaviorist arguments, you'll never deal with the discriminatory practices that are creating these these very different experiences between um, blacks and whites in the urban north. This is Fordham Conversations on WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org. I'm Nora Flaherty. Ahead this morning on Cityscape, keeping up with New York's increasing demands for power. That's Cityscape with George Bodarki this morning at 7.30 on WFUV. We've been talking today on Fordham Conversations with Brian Purnell. He's an assistant professor of African and African American Studies at Fordham, And he's working on a book about the Brooklyn chapter of the Congress on Racial Equality and about the civil rights movement in the North in general. Let's continue our conversation. CORE changed quite a bit, Brooklyn CORE, after some of its earlier campaigns, especially after the 1964 and 1965 World's Fair. What happened? Tell me about that. The World's Fair, which is scheduled to open on April 20th, 1964, is a huge, huge public works project and event to take place in New York City. So Brooklyn Corps, after about, you know, four or five years of consistent organizing for better housing, opening up jobs, you know, education battles, quality of life issues in Bedford-Stuyvesant, after consistent work on those ends and constantly devising, again, dramatic and inventive protests, when they get to the World's Fair, they're frustrated. Right, And they, they want to use this major event as a showcase to call attention to all the different forms of discrimination that are occurring. So they focus in on construction jobs once again, um, because there's a lot of construction work that goes into the World's Fair. Um, they're demanding for 25% African-American and, and Puerto Rican employment at World's Fair construction. And they're also calling for immediate changes in discriminatory practices that are occurring in in public schools and in housing and in other sectors of city life. So they threaten that if they don't receive tangible changes, they're going to clog all of the streets and highways leading up to the World's Fair on the opening day. Uh, So the World's Fair is taking place in Flushing Meadow Park. There's a lot of new highway construction that had brought urban residents out into the suburbs of Long Island, and people were going to use their cars and to get to this event in ways that they hadn't done before. And Brooklyn Corps threatens to stall automobiles on every major thoroughfare leading to the World's Fair on the opening day if their demands aren't met. So in some ways, this is its most dramatic, its most outrageous protest. It's also... Out of all the protests that they had done the past four years, it's the most difficult to actually implement. I mean, logistically, this small group of two dozen activists or so, it was logistically impossible to get enough cars to run out of gas at the same time. But the amazing thing about that demonstration is that it didn't need all of that to succeed. The the press 
for the stall-in in the two weeks leading up to the event was incredible. Every major newspaper featured stories about the stall-in. Every major news show featured interviews with members of Brooklyn Corps and editorials calling for Brooklyn Corps to, to call off what they labeled as a violent form of civil disobedience. So there was so much press, right, that Brooklyn Corps didn't need to stall cars on the opening day of the World's Fair. The one car that did stall came back and reported that there was barely any traffic. They anticipated several hundred thousand people to attend the opening day of the World's Fair, and they didn't get half those numbers. I think maybe about between 60 and 70,000 people attended that opening day, and the numbers only fell after that. So some of that may have had to do with the weather. It was really cold and rainy and chilly that day. Undoubtedly, some of it had to do with Brooklyn Corps' tactics, right? promotional tactics leading up to it. But in the aftermath of the World's Fair, a tactic that divided members of Brooklyn Corps and that caused the national office to censor and uh, disaffiliate the chapter for a short time. In the aftermath of that, Brooklyn Corps never really gains the same type of organizational momentum, right, or the same type of consistent following that they had uh, in, from people throughout the borough in the early part of the 1960s. So the chapter really kind of disintegrates in the aftermath of that protest, they, they try to do some other um, civil rights activities in, in terms of organizing around voting and trying to organize community programs in Bedford-Stuyvesant, but they just never have the same level of enthusiastic participation that they had in the early 1960s. And I, I mean, I would attribute that to, you know, the members were just frustrated and a bit disheartened from the moderate amounts of success that they were able to win from the city in the previous campaigns. What were the major successes and major failures of CORE in Brooklyn? I think some of the major successes were in their housing campaign, they were able to get individual applicants housing. Another success is they're able to win jobs at a place like the Evangers Baking Company, which was a target of, of their, one of their campaigns in 1962. So that's another success. I think you know, another major success is that Brooklyn Corps is able to get certain issues on, on the table. Right? They're able to create enough noise around certain issues that major politicians in Brooklyn and in New York City and state can't avoid dealing with this anymore. So they have to address it. They have to negotiate with someone. They have to issue some sort of conciliatory measure, if not to directly deal with the problem, at least to push it off to another time. Right. So, I, I mean, those are some of Brooklyn Corps' successes. And they're, they're wildly successful right? when it comes to getting issues of racial discrimination out in the open and in newspapers and in um, political conversation. You know, they're, they're less successful when it comes to transforming the entire structure, right? the entire political or, or social structure in New York City, which was their ultimate goal. They wanted to eradicate racial discrimination in every single form as it took place in New York City. And they, they were less, less successful in doing that. That's an ongoing problem that, that active... I mean, even just today, right, the, there's a campaign in New York State 
uh, the campaign for fiscal equity, which is has been pushing for the past almost a decade to bring about equal spending in public schools in the city versus public schools in, in other parts of the states. Like there's still questions of equity and how it affects people of color in New York City. So Brooklyn Core was less successful in creating widespread, tangible change in every single area that they wanted to. Just because, I mean, the problems were so big. They're still so big. They're bigger than any one organization can change. Is New York City a better place now, thanks to poor Brooklyn? (laughs) Uh, I think that the history of the civil rights movement in New York City is, is an unfinished movement. The more we know about those struggles from the 1960s in New York City, the more information we'll have and the more lessons we can learn about how to continue their legacy. So I think New York City can continue to be a great place as teachers and community activists and church leaders and citizens look at what activists in the past did and continue to to carry on their legacy in, in the present. Well, Brian Purnell, thanks so much for coming in. Thanks for having me, Nora. That was Brian Purnell. He's an assistant professor of African and African-American studies at Fordham. If you'd like to hear about some of Brian Purnell's other work, check out the September 16, 2006 edition of Fordham Conversations. It's in our archive at WFUV.org, along with all of our other shows. We're podcasting Fordham Conversations now. If you're interested in subscribing to the show or just looking for more information, click on Podcasting on our homepage, WFUV.org. If you want to drop us a note with any questions or comments, the homepage is also the place to go. Just click on the About slash Contact tab. From WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org, this has been Fordham Conversations. I'm Nora Flaherty. Cityscape is next. Thanks for listening and have a fabulous weekend.